Funding for this podcast comes from MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink software, accelerating the pace of engineering and science. Learn more at MathWorks.com. On May 26th, Texas Attorney General Republican Ken Paxton, facing the biggest challenge of his political career, went before the cameras and appealed to his grassroots supporters. The political theater must come to an end. I'm grateful for the outpouring of support I've received from so many Texans who understand this process is unjust and unethical. This shameful process was curated from the start as an act of political retribution. This vote is expected to take place Saturday at 1 p.m. And I want to invite my fellow citizens and friends to peacefully come let their voices be heard at the Capitol tomorrow. The process Paxton was referring to? Texas's attorney general was facing impeachment. The next day, the state's House of Representatives gathered to vote. Representative David Spiller of Texas's 68th district is, like Paxton, a solid red Republican, and he was one of the first to speak for impeachment. Today is a very grim and difficult day for this House and for the state of Texas. Attorney General Paxton has a brilliant legal mind and has worked diligently for the state of Texas. But members, no one person should be above the law, least not the top law enforcement official of the state of Texas. Paxton faced 20 articles of impeachment. Attorney General Paxton abused his office and his powers for personal gain. Attorney General Paxton continuously and blatantly violated laws, rules, policies, and procedures to intervene and interfere in the civil disputes and criminal matters of his donor and friend, Nate Paul, and benefiting himself. One of the charges also related to an extramarital affair. Here's Ann Johnson, a Democrat representing Texas's 134th district. Why is the affair important? The affair is important because it goes to Ken Paxton's political strength. He knows that with his folks, he is family values. He is a Christian man, and the idea of the exposure of the fair will risk him with his base. This is On Point. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. Texas's House of Representatives has a Republican supermajority. That's why national attention has been focused on what's happening in Austin. Would Republicans vote to impeach one of their own? Well, by the end of the day, they did, overwhelmingly. All it required was a simple majority, but the impeachment vote passed 121 to 23, including a substantial majority of Republicans in the Texas House. Of course, the process now moves to the Texas State Senate, which leaves many wondering, does the vote highlight a conflict within the Texas GOP itself? Well, joining us first today from Austin is Taylor Goldenstein. Taylor's the Austin Bureau reporter for the Houston Chronicle and has covered Ken Paxton extensively. Taylor, welcome to On Point. Hi, thanks so much for having me. So first of all, take us back to uh, the actual day of the impeachment vote in the Texas House. Was there uncertainty as to how the vote uh, was going to end up even at that time? 
I would say so, yeah. I mean, it seemed like, you know, if this was something being brought up that, you know, there was clearly interest and there was, you know, the speaker had gauged that this was something that Republicans were willing to consider. But whether it would be a modest vote or, you know, what ended up being, which is this overwhelming vote, was very much up in the air. Mm. Now, as you know, uh, we in the national media love attention-grabbing headlines. So everyone's talking uh-huh. talking about this as, you know, kind of almost like an earthquake within the Texas GOP. But how right. is how is it reverberating within Texas itself? When that vote came down, that 121 to 23 vote, it, was it seismic or not? I would say so. I mean, I think just, you know, aside from the vote, you know, even beforehand, just, uh, you know, this coming up at all um, was a shock to a lot of people because these charges have been out there for a long time. The allegations have been out there for a long time. And then within the span of three days, you had, you know, you went from just a committee hearing to, you know, full out impeachment, which hasn't happened, you know, in decades. Three days. Just three days. Okay. Right. So I want to come back to that in a quick second here, Taylor. But first of all, we've mentioned this long laundry list of charges, those some 20 charges, right? Can you just walk mm-hmm. walk me through a couple of what you think are the most significant ones? Sure. So probably about half, 10 or so of them have to do with allegations by um, some of Paxton's former top aides. And they were working under him Um, you know, back in 2020. And, you know, they witnessed what they said were, you know, a ton of, you know, abuse, you know, instances of abuse of office. Um, So that ranged from intervening in a civil suit um, to help a friend and donor. Um, That included, you know, pushing staff to write legal opinions that would help that donor, um, all kinds of things. And they alleged that, you know, he had received certain favors in exchange. So they alleged that he had received home renovations in exchange, um, you know, that, you know, different different things that he might have benefited from. And they actually were fired and filed a lawsuit against the attorney general, um, you know, for retaliation. And so that lawsuit is pretty much the basis, if I would say, most of the impeachment articles. And is it that lawsuit that led to, what, the $3 million settlement that Paxton is alleged to have paid out with government funds? Yes, exactly. Yeah, the, the, the groups came to a settlement in February for $3.3 million. And by state law, because it's the office of the attorney general that's named, it's the state that's on the hook for that money. It's okay. So there, but But people are alleging that it was improper or illegal for him to use state funds to pay out the settlement? I'm not, I'm not quite clear on, on that part of the story here. Sure, yeah. I mean, I think that's more of an opinion matter. The House Speaker had said from the beginning that he didn't think it was a proper use of, of taxpayer funds. And I think that's more, you know, not necessarily that it would, be, would have been illegal, but that, you know, from an optics perspective or just from a conscience perspective, he didn't feel like that was right, that the taxpayers should have to, you know, um, put out that money for something that, you know, we will never know if it settles, but, you know, that potentially had to do with misconduct. Okay, got it. But the optics seem to matter a lot here because something did change in the, the period of that, those three days that you're talking about. Let's listen to a little bit more of uh, the debate that took place just prior to the Texas House taking that um, impeachment vote of Attorney General Ken Paxton. Here's Republican Charlie Guerin, Speaker Pro Tempore of the Texas House, and this is what he said during the debate to impeach Paxton. Members, one of the key responsibilities of the General Investigating Committee is to look beyond partisan affiliation 
in order to take the necessary steps to protect the institution that is our state government. And I would like to point out that several members of this House, while on the floor of this House doing the state business, received telephone calls from General Paxton personally threatening them with political consequences in their next election. Again, that's Republican Charlie Guerin, Speaker Pro Tempore of the Texas House. So, Taylor, what is he talking about there? Right. So, as you heard, he alleged that members on the floor were getting threatening phone calls from the attorney general himself, um, threatening political consequences if they voted for impeachment. Okay. And so, therefore, um, possibly making Paxton even less popular uh, amongst the very people who were going to take a vote uh, on his impeachment. So Yes, there's... No, go ahead, please. Oh, I was going to say there was even, you know, after that, uh, there was a Democrat who, you know, asked whether maybe jury tampering should be added to the articles because of that move. Oh, okay. So this gets us back to the question of why now? Because as you said, um, these charges and allegations um, have been kind of bubbling for years. Um, he's, you know, they've dogged Paxton for quite some time. Right. Um, but what, I mean, do you have any sort of intel on what happened within those three days uh, between that committee meeting and the decision to hold an impeachment vote in the Texas House? Yeah, and I, I should say, too, I mean, three days for the public. The investigation had um, apparently been going on since March, but that was kept confidential. So, um, you know, not that the investigation took three days, but that the public really, um, you know, became mm. aware and then all of a sudden it was happening so soon. Um, but, yeah, I think, it, you know, the reason for it really depends who you ask. Um, you know, House leadership has been saying that it was the settlement that really pushed them over the edge to think about, OK, if we're putting money toward this, you know, let's make sure we really understand what we're paying for, what the allegations are here. And so they, you know, put together a team of lawyers to look into it. Um, I think there have been other theories floated that, you know, I don't think we'll ever know for sure. But, um, you know, we know that the FBI has been looking into this issue. Is it possible that lawmakers, you know, were afraid that maybe charges may come down before they had a chance to deal with it on their own? Um, I think that's definitely possible. Um, but yeah, it's hard to say what was really exactly the tipping point. Mm. But they say the law. They say the settlement. I see. So. Well, so we know that something broke the dam, essentially. Now, right, what what right. I find really, really interesting is that I mean that vote was overwhelming uh, mm-hmm. in in the Texas House, and it included a lot of sort of um, hardline Republicans who would ostensibly have been Ken Paxton's uh, supporters previously. Now, for those right. folks who did vote to not impeach him, it was interesting because they didn't necessarily claim his innocence, right? So here's no. here's here's Republican Tony Tinderholt of the 94th District, um, and he's talking about how he says the House didn't afford him due process. We've decided our chamber is nothing more than a weapon to wield against political opponents. This body's afforded more time for debating tampon tax relief than we've given to deciding whether imp- to impeach the highest law enforcement officer in our state. Now our Attorney General, who was strongly reelected by the voters, in both our primary and general election, might be impeached today because he's a political opponent of the opposing party. Now, uh, Tinderholt rep, uh, talks about the opposing party there, being the Democrats, I presume. But, but again, um, Republicans overwhelmingly voted to impeach Paxton. So talk about the nature of the, the sort of um, ersatz defense that uh, his, his supporters gave in the House. 
Right. Yeah, you're definitely right. It was not necessarily that, you know, Paxson hasn't done any of these things. It was more, you know, he wasn't given an opportunity to speak in front of the committee or in front of investigators. Um, They felt that the timing, you know, was very, very short. Um, So a lot of different aspects of the process. Okay. Well, today we're talking about the impeachment of Texas's Attorney General, Ken Paxton. And when we come back, we're going to explore what the real ramifications are uh, of the impeachment vote and the trial that will happen in the Texas State Senate, what the ramifications are for the Republican Party in Texas. So a lot more when we come back. This is On Point. Support for the On Point podcast comes from Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Ditch the busy work and use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash On Point. That's Indeed.com slash On Point. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Support for On Point comes from BetterHelp. If you had an extra hour in the day, how would you use it? BetterHelp Online Therapy can help you figure out what's most important to you so you can prioritize it. Learn to make time for what makes you happy. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist. And switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Visit BetterHelp.com slash OnPoint today to get 10% off your first month. This is On Point. I'm Magna Chakrabarty. And before we get back to our conversation about Texas Attorney General Ken Paxton, I want to welcome a slew of new listeners to On Point. It's a pretty big day for us because as of today... We welcome listeners across the state of Oregon who can now hear us on OPB Radio. In New Hampshire, welcome Granite Staters. You can now hear us on NHPR. In North Carolina, we welcome listeners on WUNC and on Blue Ridge Public Radio, BPR News. And across the border from North Carolina to the south on South Carolina Public Radio. And in Grand Rapids, Michigan, listeners on WGVU Radio can also hear On Point as of today. And, of course, in Texas as well. Very excited to be part of the community now on KACU in Abilene and on KUT, Austin's trusted news source. And Austin and KUT is where Taylor Goldenstein joins us. She's Austin Bureau reporter for the Houston Chronicle, and it's covered Ken Paxton extensively. And I just want to say... I am so thrilled and honored that uh, On Point is part of uh, Austin's listening options and the rest of those stations across the country that we just talked about. Now, Taylor, we're going to hear from a couple of the folks in just a, a quick minute here. But I did want you to give us uh, your analysis, if you could, about whether or not you think that the fact of the impeachment vote signals some kind of um, exposure of a divide within the Texas GOP itself. Right. I, th- I think it definitely exposed fractures, but maybe not the one that one might think looking at this, um, you know, from an outside perspective, not knowing Texas politics. I think that, you know, I don't think this represents a breaking away from um former President Donald Trump, um, the morning of the impeachment, he had put out, you know, messages on social media saying, you know, you know, in support of, of Ken Paxson and 
Um, you know, we, as we saw, it was this overwhelming vote. And I would say maybe half or a, a good chunk of the Texas Freedom Caucus still voted for it. Um, and I don't think that speaks to necessarily that Trump's pull is any uh, less strong and more speaks to the severity of the accusations against Paxton. So you're saying that the national media doesn't understand local politics, <laughs> No, no. I mean, I think that from you an outside perspective— You can say that, by the way. You could definitely— <laughs> Well, no, I just think from an outside perspective, it would be easy to say, oh, it's, you know, this is potentially the, um, you know, a sign of less of an influence from Trump. And I think, you know, being here and and knowing that these charges have been out there so long, um, I think it points to that, um, you know, if Republicans are voting for this, it means that they must have had other reasons or a strong reason to to go against um, such a strong political force here. Mm, okay, so not necessarily a referendum on former President Donald Trump, because Paxton is a is a avowed supporter of Trump, or a referendum on Trumpism. We'll talk more in right. the hour there about then about what this actually does mean uh, for Texas Republicans. But if you just hang yeah. on here for a second, Taylor, I want to turn now to Matt Makoviak. He's a GOP political and communications consultant and president of Potomac Strategy Group based in Austin and Washington. And he consults for more conservative politicians in Texas, has not worked, though, for Attorney General Ken Paxton. Matt, welcome to On Point. Pleasure. Thanks for having me. Okay, so uh, focusing once again just on the attorney general himself, what impact do you think the impeachment vote is going to have on Paxton's future? Well, it's all going to come down to whether he's removed from office by the Senate during the trial, which is expected anywhere between late July and late August, uh, or whether he somehow survives. And if he survives, uh, it could actually strengthen him within the Republican Party to some extent. He will have uh, overcome his most serious political threat. Uh, you still will have uh, perhaps the uh, DOJ, FBI, uh, you know, legal risk uh, out there. Uh, but it really, I think, puts puts the issue behind him. Obviously, if he's removed from office, my understanding of of uh, state law uh, is that not only could he not be attorney general, uh, but he can't serve in any other office. I don't know if that, I presume that's just at the state level. Uh, so he has a hell of a lot riding on this over the next two months. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I imagine he, he's in the fight. He feels as, as though he's in the fight of his life. Hmm. Now, how would you describe uh, sort of Paxton's position, his role, his his sort of influence in the Texas GOP itself? Yeah, so he's more on the the sort of uh, hardline or conservative wing of the party. Uh, he's been an anti-establishment figure for some time, really kind of gone against establishment candidates uh, in seeking different offices. He challenged our sitting speaker, I don't know, 10 or 12 years ago. Um, he overcame, overcame a, a pretty significant three-way race to win the attorney general's office initially, including defeating a uh, leadership uh, member who was chair of the Higher Education Committee, Dan Branch of Dallas. Uh, just uh, in November, uh, he, he won uh, re-election again, this time by 10%. Mm. And in the primary, he overcame George P. Bush, uh, a Latina member of the state Supreme Court, Eva Guzman, and Louis Gomer, the Congress, a member of Congress. So um, he is uh, aligned with grassroots conservatives and with the conservative movement nationally. He certainly is aligned with Trump. There's no question. There may be the possible exception for our lieutenant governor, there's probably no one in Texas more closely aligned politically with Trump than Ken Paxton is. Um, and so he has kind of two uh, enemies here. He has you know, Democrats who've wanted to go after him for some time, to some extent about these corruption issues, but mostly uh, due to the way he conducts the office and the way he looks at, uh, at various policy issues. But then he also has uh, mainstream Republicans, particularly in the Texas House, 
who have been um, been interested in in uh, you know going after him for some time, and this settlement gave them that opportunity. Uh huh. You know what's interesting to me though, as far as I read the the actual vote in uh, uh, that took place in the House, it was at least some of the um, sort of Trump aligned members of uh, Republican members of the House who also voted for Paxton's impeachment. So how do you read that, Matt? Still with us, Matt? Yes, I am. Sorry. Yeah, no, go ahead. Uh, sorry, I missed. I missed your question. Ah, oh, sorry. Well, I was. I was just saying that. Um, yes. That uh, I, as far as I can read, the the House vote for impeachment that mm-hmm. took place, at least yeah. some of the uh, Trump aligned members of the House yeah. also voted for Paxton's impeachment. And do, do you see that as significant, or how do you read that? Yeah, that was interesting. I mean, look, the margin in the House was was bigger than I expected. I think it was one twenty one to twenty three, um, and 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 I don't think it was a, a clear sort of clean ideological break between sort of the hardline conservatives and the mainstream members. You had some mainstream members. Uh, he's a long term serving member from from out from Amarillo named John Smithy, who made an impassioned case uh, against impeachment, not because he uh, you know supports Paxton. In fact, he opposed him, I believe, in the primary. Uh, but then you had hardline members of the Texas Freedom Caucus that voted to impeach. So in the House, I think it was really more of a, a decision of conscience uh, for for all members. Uh, well, part of what was different, which I think is a reasonable criticism, is that is that the Attorney General had no ability to present a defense. The House basically served as a grand jury, um, and so he couldn't call witnesses, he couldn't provide testimony, he couldn't provide evidence, he couldn't uh, you know uh, get discovery. He's going to have presumably some uh, ability to do those things in the trial. In fact, they have to decide the the the, the process for the trial here uh, this month. Uh, but but you're going to see, I think, him be able to present a defense. I know, for example, he has said that he has paid for all the renovations to his house that the donor didn't pay for them. That's either true or not. It can either be proven or it can cannot be proven. And I think that will be a pretty material fact as it relates to uh, to the corruption allegations related to the house renovations. Mm. Well, regarding the point that you just made, Matt, we have a clip here from Republican Tom Smithy during the debate. He represents Texas's 86th. And here's why he urged the House to vote no on impeachment. I'm not here today to tell you that General Paxton should not be impeached. That's that's not why I'm here. Bottom line is I don't know whether he should or not, because I don't have the evidence before me to make that determination. There's a right way to do things, and there's a wrong way to do things. If you want to do this the right way, what we should do is vote no on the resolution today. Um, Let me just jump back to Taylor Goldenstein here for a second. So, Matt, hang on. Um, When uh, Paxton supporters say, you know, that the attorney general was not allowed to present a defense, but nevertheless, there was all the House members had access, I presume, to the results of the investigations that had been going on about Paxton. Is that correct? Right, right. Yeah, I think that's been the House response or the committee's response is that, you know, their job was to decide, is there enough there there for them to to go ahead and have a trial? And the trial is really where, you know, Paxson would get his chance to give his defense. Right. So, I mean, I guess in that case, Matt's analogy is right. There's there's a grand jury and then there's a trial and that trial is right. going to happen in the Senate, in Texas, the state Senate. So, Matt, do you do you care to give a prediction about what might happen in the Senate, given that a surprising number of Paxton's, Paxton's uh, you know, most ardent supporters in the House voted for impeachment? What do you think? Yeah, I, th- I think there's a really key difference between the House and the Senate. I think there's two key differences. One is he'll be able to offer that defense, which I think may raise doubts. 
among, in this case, the jurors, uh, meaning the senators, the 31 senators. Uh, but second is the Senate is the most conservative it's ever been. Uh, this is the most conservative Texas Senate Texas has ever had. Uh, we had one or maybe one and a half moderates uh, on the Republican side uh, in the last session before the last election. They both are now gone. One retired uh, in one. I can't remember if he sought re-election or was defeated in the primary. I believe he was defeated in the primary. But um, the Senate is, is is really, really, really conservative. And so um, there, this, this is all happening at a time when the House and Senate are, are, are already fighting. They're fighting over property taxes. They're fighting over school choice. They're fighting over other issues. So I don't think the Senate wants to rubber stamp what the House has done here. I think they are going to look at it carefully. Um, I think they're going to see, you know, see both sides. You need a two thirds vote to remove him from office. So that's nine Republicans, presumably joining with all 12 Democrats. Um, I, I tend to think that, the, he, that, that they won't remove him, that you won't get nine votes. You might get a handful uh, of Republicans, perhaps. Uh, but that, that's my sense right now. But we have to see what the, the what the process is going to be for the trial. Um, we saw that six of, of Paxton's deputies are taking leave from the AG's office to defend him in the trial. I think that's a sign that they obviously believe in his defense. Um, but I will say that the investigating committee, um, you know, uh, in terms of the investigation they conducted and the way they conducted it, obviously presented a compelling case to the mm. Texas House. So it could be that you're going to have a compelling case presented on both sides in the Senate, whereas in the House, she only had it uh, presented on one side. Yeah. So I wonder what, finally, Matt, what your sort of take is on whether or not this is an inflection point for the Texas GOP. Because I, you know, I definitely hear Taylor in her, in her analysis about it may not be the inflection point that the rest of the nation thinks it is. But it does seem like kind of a big landmark for uh, Republicans to vote to impeach one of their own. I mean, do you think this could, when we looking back uh, a couple of years from now, we might look at this as a moment of uh, of change for the Texas GOP? Yeah, it's an interesting question. Um, you know, I, I tend to think this is a unique case. Paxson's a unique case. The facts here are a unique case. You have a lot of history with him in the House, having challenged the sitting speaker, um, and and so I don't I don't know. I mean, if if your if your point is that maybe this breaks, this could break um, a partisan sort of lock on on the way elected representatives view things. I guess that's possible. Uh, I tend to think these things are probably just more uh, unique to, to Paxton himself. I think where it matters more uh, is uh, how this could affect elections in Texas four years from now. Uh, we have a governor, lieutenant governor, who have been there for some time. There's speculation that one or both of them may not seek re-election uh, Paxton would be a natural uh, candidate to run for, off, for an office like lieutenant governor if he's able to survive this. So I think that's going to be an interesting subplot because you have a couple senators in there, I think, who might also be interested in running for lieutenant governor. So this might be a way to remove a future rival. Uh, you would hope those kind of considerations wouldn't be uh, the determining factor. But uh, but politics uh, is, is a blood sport. <laughs> no kidding. Well, Matt Makoviak, GOP political and communications consultant and president of the Potomac Strategy Group. Thank you so much for joining us. Pleasure. All right. So Matt mentioned the uh, impact that uh, Paxton's either continued presence uh, on the Texas political scene or maybe if he is uh, found guilty by the Texas state Senate, his absence from the political scene, what impact that might have. Well, not just on Paxton's own political future, but on other races around the state of Texas. So here's Ross Barrera. He's a Republican politician who ran for mayor of Rio Grande City in Texas in 2022. He lost but he 
he's running again in 2024. And he and other Republicans have been trying to woo voters in the Rio Grande Valley, most of whom were once reliably Democrats. And Ross Barrera tells us he thinks Attorney General Ken Paxton is really hurting those efforts. Voters, and this is just me speaking and not for any party, but for others that I've spoken with, is that it's lingering and it's very hard to defend our party and people that want to come into a party saying, look, you guys are defending this guy who's been he's been indicted by the whole Texas House, which is mainly Republicans. People are acknowledging that it, it, he is going to be a liability for the upcoming elections. So they're saying, enough, get the guy out. We thank you for serving, Mr. Paxton, but you need to go. That's Ross Barrera, Republican politician who's running for mayor of Rio Grande City in 2024. Well, joining us now is Geronimo Cortina. He's a political scientist at the University of Houston, and he joins us from Houston. Professor Cortina, welcome to you. Hi, Megna. So tell us, respond to what Ross Barrera said there about sort of the ripple effect of uh, the impeachment and Ken Paxton's sort of uh, moves and behavior within Texas over the past couple of years. Well, I mean, it's a very interesting position, a very interesting question. And especially when you look at the Texas Republican Party, you have a big tent, right? And in this big tent, you have social conservatives, then you have fiscal conservatives, and then you have, you know, business conservatives or your more traditional Republicans. So when you put all these groups together under these big tent, that creates a lot of friction. So you have significant debate, you know, between those that are the social conservatives, those that do not want the government or want the government out of almost everything, fiscal conservatives, then you have business conservatives that want to see, you know, more spending on infrastructure, transportation, education, and that creates the sparks. And I think that, you know, this case creates uh a very particular case in which these parts can be indicated that something bigger might happen. And I want to underline might because we still don't know how, you know, is going to turn out at the end. Well, yeah, so this is why we find what's happening in Texas so interesting, right? Because there is the tendency to, you know, look at for the, the Texas state legislature and see that Republican supermajority and want to just uh, put them all in the, the Trumpist box, right? But you're, but you're saying that that's not at all really the, the true texture of, of the Texas Republican Party? Well, I mean, looking at the impeachment vote, right, the 10 most conservative uh, members of the Republican Party, you have a 50-50 split, right? When you look at the 2021 uh, vote record on how these representatives voted, the 10 most Republican, the 10 most conservative representatives from the Republican Party, five voted in favor of impeachment and five voted against it. So I think that's a very interesting indication of all the tensions and the real needy texture that we need to understand. Okay, so when we come back from the break, I'm going to ask for your your help, Professor Cortina, and your help, Taylor, as well, in further understanding that texture. So we'll be right back. This is On Point. Did you kill Marlene Johnson? I think you're one of the first people to have actually asked. 
From WBUR and ZSP Media, this is Beyond All Repair, a new podcast about an unsolved murder that will leave you questioning everything. Somebody should be in jail for murdering my sister. A woman who's never been believed. As long as they think I have done this, then they're not looking for who actually did this. And that's what makes it a cold case. No, it's a botched case. And a search for the truth, once and for all. Wow, it just gets more interesting. Beyond All Repair. Listen and follow wherever you get your podcasts. Be careful. You're digging in a place that's been very peaceful for a while. Do it anyway. Dig. The world's clean energy future relies on ancient elements still in the ground. Without mining, there will not be a clean energy transition. But pulling them out of the ground comes at an environmental and human cost. Mining is intrusive, but the results are the building blocks for products that we use every single day. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. Join me for Elements of Energy, Mining for a Green Future. Five consecutive episodes right here. So make sure you're following this podcast. You're back with On Point. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty, and I just once, once again want to welcome many, many listeners across the station who we are joining you on your airwaves as of today. So as a reminder, folks in the great state of Oregon, my home state, can now hear On Point on OPB Radio. Uh, also in New Hampshire, we're joining you today on NHPR and in North Carolina on WUNC and on Blue Ridge Public Radio in North Carolina as well. That's BPR News. And across the to their neighbor to the south, we're happy to be joining you on South Carolina Public Radio. Then over in Michigan in Grand Rapids, listeners on WGVU Radio can hear us as of today and in Texas as well on KACU in Abilene and on KUT, Austin's trusted news source. We are very honored to be joining all of you in your communities today on your airwaves. And by the way, KUT is where Taylor Goldenstein joins us. She's the Austin Bureau reporter for the Houston Chronicle. She's covered Ken Paxton extensively. And with us from Houston is Geronimo Cortina. He's a professor of political science at the University of Houston. I just want to play another moment here from the impeachment debate that took place uh, in the Texas House uh, when they took the vote to impeach Attorney General Ken Paxton. Here's Democrat Ann Johnson talking about Paxton receiving a campaign donation when he was a member of the House a decade ago from the CEO of a software company in return for, quote, services. When he gets busted on that, he says, no, it's just a gift. And somebody says, what do you mean it's a gift? And he says, I met a guy in a Dairy Queen and he told me God told me to give you this hundred thousand dollars. Speaker Guerin said it really well. I have never had anybody come up to me and said, God told me that I should give you $100,000. That's not the only $100,000 incident. So more evidence there of how allegations from a decade ago are coming home to roost now with the attorney general in Texas. But let's step back a little bit here because Ken Paxton has a very clear uh, very clear position and very clear um, persona on the national stage as one of former President Donald Trump's most 
ardent supporter. Of course, it was the Texas Attorney General who filed a, a, a national lawsuit uh, denying the election results of the 2020 presidential election. And Attorney General Ken Paxton also appeared on January 6th, 2020, at that Trump rally that happened before, uh, I should say January 6th, 2021, excuse me, at that Trump rally before uh, the attacking of Congress. What we have in President Trump is a fighter. And I think that's why we're all here. We believe in what he's accomplished over the last four years. Because we're here today, the message goes on. We will not quit fighting. We're Texans, we're Americans, and we're not quitting. God bless you for being here today. God bless this great country we live in. Thank you. So, Taylor, um, I wanna, we're going to focus back on Paxton within Texas in just a minute here. But, you know, analyze that, that national character that he has. I mean, how, when did he become a, a, a true supporter of former President Donald Trump? And, um, you know, how would you describe why he became that kind of supporter? Right. I mean, I think pretty much from the get-go, they've been very closely aligned um, and have supported each other over the years. Um, and it's it's really no surprise considering their their politics. Both of them sit at the far right, um, you know, edge of the party and, um, you know, have a lot of the same um, beliefs when it comes to election fraud, um, the border, um, you know, all kinds of social issues. Um, and so, yeah, they're, they're kind of, um, you know, cut from the same cloth. Mm. And has Ken Paxton always been sort of a, this, the, a hard right Republican in, as he rose in Texas politics? I would say so, yeah. I mean, he has made a name for himself amongst, you know, the grassroots. He, I think he really takes pride in coming up from the grassroots. Um, he has strong support in his home county of Collin County in the Dallas area. Um, and, yeah, that's the, that goes back to, you know, even his time in the legislature. Mm. Okay, so tell us a little bit more about that because he served in the in the Texas House, right? Both, actually, okay. yeah. Yeah, um, you know— Pretty similar to how he is now, I think, you know, has always kind of, like I said, you know, used those grassroots, um, that grassroots support to really push him through that time period and, um, you know, different issues, different time, but <laughs> uh, same same kind of political considerations. I see. So, you know how um, Professor Cortina a little earlier said that there's a lot of different sort of factions within the Texas GOP itself. Mm-hmm. How much would you say that um, Paxton's uh, sort of hard right-wing stance and his his support of Donald Trump, how much did that play into him winning re-election uh, as attorney general? Right. Yeah, I, th- I think that definitely plays into it. I mean, it, there was some question at the beginning of the primary whether Trump would um, endorse him versus some of the other candidates. Um, you know, Matt mentioned, you know, Congressman Lou Gohmert was, was in the race, um, but he did end up getting the endorsement. And I think that that did speak volumes to, you know, that partnership, you know, lasting even through some of these legal troubles. Mm. Okay. So, Professor Cortina, let me turn back to you because I wanted Taylor to sort of walk us through, um, you know, that brief timeline of uh, Paxton's political career in Texas. Because, you know, you mentioned that there's there's quite a, an interesting uh, texture within the Texas GOP that maybe nation- nationally we don't recognize. So, 
just staying with the sort of Trumpist uh, part of the Texas GOP for a moment, I mean, how influential would you say um, that uh, those quote unquote grassroots uh, Trump supporters are within the the Texas Republican Party itself? Well, I think you know, it depends where you look at the state. And they're going to be parts of the state that are going to be more likely to support that type of uh, grassroots movements, you know, the, the the Republican MAGA movement. But other parts of the state are not as enthused as, you know, uh, especially when we're talking about, for example, very particular uh, part of the electorate, right? Uh, in past elections, we have seen uh, especially suburban voters not really supporting at comparable rates uh, voting for Republicans, especially those Republicans that deeply align with the MAGA movement with President Trump. And then you have, you know, the narrative that we have seen, especially in the 2020 elections, right? The inroads that supposedly the Republican Party was making in South Texas, especially in the Rio Grande Valley. Uh, and we saw, you know, a mixed bag of results. You saw Henry Cuellar winning once again. You saw Vicente Gonzalez uh, defeating Mayra Flores uh, by, uh, down there in McAllen. And then you see Monica de la Cruz in a heavily redistrict, uh, uh, redrawn district winning for the first time or became the first Republican to win the 15th uh, congressional district. So it depends how you look at the situation, how you peel the onion. But at the end, I think that that uh, MAGA support in Texas is going to be regionally located and obviously very well segmented within the electorate. Mm. You know, it's interesting because I think oftentimes we see with voters uh, voting one way, you know, sort of locally, but then voting a, another way nationally or even um, at the, the state level. Because as I look for look at how Texans had, has voted for statewide offices, you know, governor, lieutenant governor, attorney general, you've got Governor Greg Abbott, Lieutenant uh, Governor Dan Patrick, and, and, and Ken Paxton. So is there a, a reason why it seems that the sort of Trump-supporting aspect of the, the, the Texas GOP um, has what seems to be a pretty firm grip on statewide offices. I mean, yes and no. And everything comes down to turnout at the end. Uh, the state is changing demographically speaking, uh, especially, you know, population growth in the state of Texas is driven by Latinos. Uh, Latinos, yes, is not a, a, a you know, a very, uh, I would say, Latinos vote both Democrats and, and Republican. It's just not something very homogeneous. It's more heterogeneous in terms of their support. However, uh, we have seen also that Latinos, even though that they might re uh, vote Republican, they tend to lean Democrat. And I think that for many of them, as we uh, hear uh, just a few moments ago, that type of uh, MAGA republicanism doesn't fare well. So the question here is for uh, Republicans looking forward, not just, you know, the next election cycle, but looking forward is should we rebrand our party in terms of accommodating those demographic groups that are significantly growing in the state? And Historically, Texas has been a one-party state. We had uh, Democrats dominating state politics for more than 100 years after Reconstruction. 1994 was the last time we had a Democratic uh, governor where Ann Richards lost uh, the 
uh, uh, gubernatorial election against uh, President and then Governor uh, uh, George W. Bush by 8% points. And then the last Democrat elected to office quit, uh, Dan Morales uh, quit in uh, December 2, 1997. So it's a cycle, and I think that this might be the beginning of a cycle of seeing those fractures and the growing pains of the Republican Party trying to react to changing demographics. Mm. So you're not necessarily saying, though, that this is a cycle in which things might swing back to the Democrats, but rather sort of a, a reassessment of what the Texas GOP wants to be. Is that right? Uh, a little bit of both. Oh, because, okay. <laughs> because on the other <laughs> hand, on the other hand, you have Democrats that also have to start thinking about. And these internal fights that we see in the Republican Party, we also see uh, uh, see them in the Democratic Party. We saw, for example, very interesting races in 2022. Uh, the primary race with uh, Representative Henry Cuellar versus Jessica Cisneros. We yeah. see traditional Democrats versus more progressive Democrats. The House of Representatives here in Texas has new blood of more progressive uh, Democrats. So is also a, uh, an internal uh, realignment and looking into the future of where each of these political parties have to reposition themselves so they can be attracted to voters. Well, then in that case, I mean, given the importance of Texas nationally, right, this does seem to be quite a, a compelling moment to understand what's what's happening there on the ground politically. Do you see any relationship to the sort of... Um, realignment or reconsideration going on within the Texas GOP and even the Democratic Party, as you said, any relationship between that and, you know, what might be happening with the parties nationally? Well, I think there is a, an interaction there where a two-way causation or chicken or of egg, or an egg type of question. So we have seen over the past years the nationalization of local politics. So local politics, state politics reflect to a huge extent what happened in, in the nation overall. And then those national politics are fed by what's happening at the state level. Mm -hmm. So I think that we have seen that. We have seen it in the House of Representatives, in Congress, we have seen that very clearly. You have the uh, Ocasio-Cortez type of, of Democrats versus more traditional Democrats. In the Senate, we have seen not so much different movement, but obviously we have seen, you know, Senator Manchin uh, trying to move to more conservative side, other senators pushing the other way around. So I think it's, you know, everything is something that, you know, started at least at the national level with a Tea Party movement back in 2009, and now is moving forward slowly and taking different avenues to try to collect where are we going in terms of political parties. Right. Okay. So Taylor, uh, Professor Cortina mentioning that, you know, we still have a lot of national influence on state and local politics. That brings me back to something you said earlier in the show about former President Donald Trump, who has made comment, right, about uh, Ken Paxton's impeachment. I mean, how much influence do you think... Um, Donald Trump himself could have right now on the in the process as it moves to the Texas Senate. Right. I mean, I think that's what makes it so, um, you know, made it so amazing that um, so many Republicans did vote this way because, you know, there's a very real threat, um, you know, of going against Trump in Texas and, um, you know, some of the further right 
Um, people in the party have been, you know, threatening primary challenges. Obviously, with that many members, you know, going that way, it would be hard to challenge all of them. But that's not to say it's not a real threat to their own uh, careers. Mm. And, you know, Matt McCoviak said a little earlier that the Texas State Senate is as conservative as it's ever been. I wanted to check that with, with your view of the Senate. Yes, I would say they're definitely more conservative than the House. They've always been the more conservative chamber. Okay, so in that case, then, I mean, what read can we take from what happened in the in the House to what might happen in you know in the Senate? Because they're the ones who are actually going to have to take a, a guilty or not guilty vote. Right. I mean, I, I wouldn't venture to guess like Matt <laughs> did, but I will say that I think that the. The vote in the House really is telling and, um, you know, it it exerts more pressure on the Senate than there would have been had it been a modest vote. And that I think that that's something that they're going to take into mind. I see. Okay. well, as we sort of um, head towards the last minute or so of the show here, Professor Cortina, I'm wondering, um, look, it's a fact that former President Donald Trump basically casts a shadow nationally over everything when we talk about um, Republicans in the United States. For as long as he is still on the scene, and as of this moment, he's still the leading contender uh, in the GOP 2024 presidential field, are we going to be able to really have a sort of that clear realignment or, or reckoning within the Texas GOP itself? Or will that come in whatever direction it might take after former President Donald Trump exits the scene whenever that might be? Oh, that's a good question. Um, I don't know. I mean, anything can happen, right? I mean, in terms of, you know, Trump influence in Texas, yes, indeed. Uh, Trump, especially in urban areas, in big cities, big metro areas here in Texas, is not very popular. Uh, the bail threat that he launched before the impeachment vote uh, didn't sway a lot of uh, conservatives to not impeach uh, Paxton. So, once again, the coin is on the air and we just need to wait and see where it lands. Well, Geronimo Cortina, professor of political science at the University of Houston. Professor Cortina, thank you so much for joining us today and giving us a sense of the true texture of Texas politics. Much appreciated. Thank you. And Taylor Goldenstein, Austin bureau reporter for the Houston Chronicle, who's covered Ken Paxton extensively, joining us today from KUT in Austin. Taylor, it's been great to have you. Thank you so much for your reporting. Thank you for having me. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. This is On Point.